Scotty were in a podcast in the year 2020, which has become an extraordinary year, hasn't it? It seems like it should be over by now, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, so we're, we're going to be talking about some things today that are a little different than what we've done in the past. Uh, our topic today is equal justice from a trial lawyer's perspective in the year 2020. And, um, and so this whole notion of equal justice, I think, is dynamic right now in our, in our society. When you hear the word equal justice, what comes immediately to mind? Uh, when I hear equal justice, I think it's not real, uh, that we don't have it right now. And it all depends on whose perspective that you're hearing from. We've got everything from Black Lives Matter protesters who are saying there is no justice for the black man to uh, law enforcement officers who are now seemingly persecuted uh, because of a few bad actors within the law enforcement. And so I think that right now what we see are examples of when the justice system doesn't work. And what I don't like about that is it seems like one side is extreme and the other side is extreme and the truth seems to be lost in the middle. Extremism, tribalism, the interesting concepts nowadays. But what I hear you saying is that equal justice may be in the eyes of the beholder and it's not good enough for an old white guy like me or uh, almost old white guy like you to be the one that's making that judgment. Well, I don't think that equal justice is in the eye of the beholder. I think that unfortunately equal justice sometimes doesn't exist <clears throat> because of who claims equal justice at the time. And we can go back to the founding of our country. I mean, way back in, in the early days, we talked about all men are created equal. Well, yeah, as long as men didn't include black men. And by the way, men can't mean women. And so even then we knew that equal justice didn't mean equal justice. But I think that deep down in our hearts, I mean, really in the inalienable rights we all have, that equality of justice did exist and we need to keep striving for it. We're just not there yet. And so I just disagree that it, it's in the eye of the beholder is we just have to keep striving to get it right. Well, so in the year 2020, different from all the years that I've been alive, we have pandemic we're dealing with. Oh, yeah. And so we, we have now new topics to help define what civil liberties mean in the era of the pandemic. And we have um, folks that are on the streets in most of the major cities in the country protesting because of perceiving that, that they are not receiving equal justice, that the, this whole notion of law and order doesn't really pertain to them. So the, these are fairly controversial type topics that we're going to be talking about, especially in rural America. Um, where do you want to start? Well, again, I think that they're not controversial so long as you fit in the box that people want to define it as. Because I think we all agree that peaceful protesters have that right under the Constitution. I think everybody First agrees Amendment. with that. First Amendment. First Amendment. Everybody agrees with that. But what they say is this particular person isn't peacefully protesting. This particular person is inciting riots or is looting or is making a pretense. And I think that's where um, this conversation is really important for trial attorneys is because all of the time you and I go into a courtroom, what we're trying to do is say this set of facts fits this particular area of law. And I don't think that there's a big disagreement about what the law is. I think the disagreement is in this particular fact, is this a protester or is this a rioter? Is this an abuse by a law enforcement officer or is this an allowable use of force? Do you see what I mean? Sure. And I think your example of, again, from a perspective of trial lawyers is a good one because that thing that we deal with in the courtroom, we've been dealing with for a long time, well, well before 2020 with the pandemic and with protests. 
And it's why as trial lawyers, we realize the jury selection process is probably the most important part of the process of the trial because we have to be able to get Lady Justice communicated to a group of 12 people or a group of 60 people we're starting with right out of the gate that we have to be able to start even despite the fact that each of us in the human journey have biases and prejudice and a frame of reference that's unique to our own walk in life. And that's what scares me about where we are in society today is because I see that this scale is just getting tipped a little bit by what's going on in current events. And I see it doesn't matter which example it is. You can talk about rioters. You can talk about a particular uh, person who's been abused by the police. It, it really doesn't matter. But these examples that are portrayed in the media and then are highlighted skew the perspective of the mass audience that the media puts it out to. And so now we think that all of these events are like that one. And that means I think that we have a distorted view. Well, it, it, and I think it's, it's, that's spot on because it's what we each separately as human beings are seeing. So if what we're looking at is a particular source that's always going to tell us this extreme story on one side, then we don't get balance. And if we look at the source that's on the other side, especially in an era where we have social media with all these videos that are out there showing us this 60 second clip of what's happening without the context surrounding it, it creates the inability almost for us to be objective about what it is that's out there in front of us. And the other thing, again, I keep coming back to what we do. You and I are trial attorneys for a reason is we feel like the truth is important and we should try and get to the truth and that we want a verdict to literally speak the truth. But I think that these media outlets you're talking about, and I don't care if it's Fox News or MSNBC or whoever you want to pick on, they no longer seem interested in the truth so much as they seem interested in a wider audience, a better rating, more advertising dollars. And that's what worries me is that the truth is being lost. And that's, again, I think now more than ever, we have the ability to just tune into news sources that reinforce our worldview. And the problem with that is we, we lose any ability to see something from the other person's perspective. So, step back and look at this topic we're talking about now, which is the protest part, because okay. we're, we're going to get to the pandemic and some of the effects that that's caused. But the protest part that we've been seeing in the news, so to speak, for the last several weeks now, all that really began in the middle of the pandemic with George Floyd and the videos that we all have seen now of, of uh, him being incapable of breathing and saying, I can't breathe while his life slowly suffocated out from him. Okay. So that obviously spurred something again, that's unique in our environment in this country, the right to have a peaceful protest against a wrong and injustice that's occurring. And, and what has caused some confusion about that is that part of the story that we see is people taking advantage of that legal right for peaceful assembly, right to protest, the First Amendment clearly gives us, and looting and rioting and destroying property along the way. Right. So, so then the other version of it is, okay, we have to have law and order. But law and order doesn't mean taking away somebody's First Amendment rights at the same time if they're being peaceful protesters. So where's the balance? 
Well, in that case, I think the balance is, are you committing an illegal act or not? And so for me, it's really easy to tell the difference between a protester and a rioter, because a rioter is destroying somebody else's property, a protester is not. Somebody who's rioting is inciting violence and actually committing some crime, and a protester is not. And so it is very fact-specific, and the problem that I see is if you, for example, started to throw a brick through a window, and I happen to be standing next to you, and I am only peacefully protesting, but you're actually inciting violence it's very difficult for an outside person to figure out which one of us is the bad actor or if we're acting together. And I think that's where it gets muddied. And so I don't know if it's a balance so much as it's a quest to figure out what the facts are. And in the heat of the moment, it's very, very difficult. But I'll go back to the, to the same example that you used is law enforcement officers have to be able to use physical means to restrain somebody who's resisting arrest. Absolutely. I mean, I went through the police academy in, gosh, 1994 now. Um, and there are some times where you physically have to lay hands on somebody, but you should never put your knee on somebody's neck until the point that they lose their life. And so I think, again, the facts of the situation should demand how we treat one another, both with protesters, both with people being arrested, both with the response to law enforcement. I think all of that has to be seen in context. And so I don't know where the balance is other than it's really an important fact question this behavior is acceptable, this behavior is not. And we need to draw those clear lines. So what, one thing that we look at as trial lawyers is what's the evidence? Right. And, and in the year 2020, unlike when I began practicing law 29 years ago, nowadays everybody's got a smartphone on them and they can take a video of whatever it is they're seeing in front of them. And, and one wonders and worries sometimes about whether there's editing of that video later, but, but one's able to do that, which creates evidence. And now, as we all look at George Floyd, we see the context of what was happening that led up to his death. And the same is true in many other examples around the country. But the reality is probably some of these same things have been happening. Not probably. These same things have been happening for centuries where the vulnerable, the weak, those that are not able to control the situation around them sometimes have bad actors that are taking advantage of them and sometimes, in fact, taking away their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So we ought to be able now in 2020 to be able to prove with the evidence that should be able to be gathered whether a wrong occurs or whether it doesn't. Yet, as, as you and I are looking at videos online through Twitter, through Instagram, through the other online modalities that are there, and we see that 60 seconds, how do we make a judgment, us as trial lawyers, individuals, humans on the human journey, how, how do we make a judgment as to whether what we're seeing is an injustice, is an example of no equal justice? Well, I think part of it, again, comes with the awareness that this is now brought forth. I mean, I can remember Rodney King and all kinds of other isolated incidents over the last several decades. And I think what we now have is enough statistics, enough data, enough video, enough collective consciousness, if you will, where we've seen too many of these things. And so now all across the country for the first time ever, we admit that there's a problem with our police forces reaction to some minorities. And we can see both acts of violence. We can see incarceration rates. We can see conviction rates. We can see all kinds of examples that now any given event could be manipulated, exaggerated, explained, but there are too many for too long that have too clear documentation that I think now a majority of the population thinks, yes, there's really a problem there. And now the struggle is how to fix it. 
But I think now we have crossed that threshold finally of we have a problem. And I think that's the first step is that we are aware that as much as we would love to say that we don't have a problem with police brutality, sometimes in some places we do. Well, identification of the problem, and it's something that, that we've talked about in other contexts for a number of years now. For instance, we do medical malpractice work. And as we've discussed in the past, you know, 90% of the malpractice occurs from 5% of the healthcare providers. So you've got all these other doctors and nurses that are doing a terrific job that are caring about the people that they're taking care of that are, are sometimes like today in the middle of the pandemic, risking their lives to do so. And yet you have these others that over and over and over again are either sloppy, negligent, or sometimes just don't care. And the same is true in the police environment. You know, most of these folks that are out there really do understand that protect and serve means something. There's an honor to it. And yet you got these few that because of racism, because of sexism, because of, of uh, their own biases that they bring into their job, they can't choose to fulfill that mission of protect and serve. Well, and that's what we go back to. Your medical malpractice transition is, is a good example because there we know that the more checklists, the more policies, the more procedures, the more systematic, here's how we safely deal with this situation, the less individual opportunity for error exists. And that's what we need to do with the police force as well is, um, I mean, honestly, I think we ask officers to do too much now is we ask them to be social workers. We ask them to be mental health workers. We ask them to be drug and alcohol counselors. We ask them to um, deal with housing issues. I mean, you name it, they are way overburdened. And I mean, I hate the slogan defund the police because the last thing that we need to do is defund the police. But should we take some of these opportunities to eliminate the problem before it occurs? I mean, I really like having a code blue team at a hospital to respond if somebody has cardiac arrest. But I would much rather that we keep that person from going into cardiac arrest to start with. And it's the same way with law enforcement is, I want our law enforcement to respond to situations knowing how to de-escalate, knowing how to deal with somebody who's mentally unstable, or better yet, have a different type of response task force. Just like in some situations you need SWAT to go in, in some situations you don't. In some situations you need a social worker, a mental health worker, some sort of a counselor. And I think what we ask of law enforcement is to do too many different things with too little training. I agree entirely. The, the, this notion that got out there as a reaction to a wrong that occurred of defund the police. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, who comes up with these things? What, what, what rational human being thinks that we want to defund law enforcement and have anarchy? Nobody does. But there is a, an appropriate reaction. The appropriate reaction is, like you said, identification of where the bad apples, so to speak, are, not continuing to employ them if they get hired in, or fired in one place for brutality, not just them being able to get hired in the next city over to do the same job and do the same actions without any repercussions. So it would be nice if there was a policing their own that they were doing where it wasn't um, where it wasn't the sort of thing where you would think that, they're all, that, that the blue line is going to be established and nobody better cross it. It would also be nice if we didn't have immunities in the legal part of it for, for those that are truly those that are abusing the system, that are treating those that are weak and vulnerable uh, as attack dogs rather than as people that are helping solve problems. 
it would be nice if, if those immunities didn't exist for that. Um, but, but these are fixes that are necessary in a system of law and order. It doesn't mean taking away from law and order. It means creating law and order that allows for equal justice for everybody. And I think that's the important conversation uh, that is happening and needs to continue to happen now in our society finally is how do we fix this? How do we address that? And again, part of it is a problem with the terms is because I don't want there to be any confusion about what I think we need to do. We need to protect our officers. We do. We need to enable them to do the things they need to do to keep themselves safe. We also need to protect those people who are accused of a crime and not allow an officer to be a judge, jury, and executioner. And I think that that is, uh, again, where we need to make sure we're having a conversation about what's allowed, how do we prevent it, what are the ways we're going to measure our success, and then how do we keep this certain type of individual from ever being in that spot to begin with. Well, and, and when we're talking about how police officers are doing their jobs in light of all the pressures that exist right now, Again, understanding that this is a hard job that they have, even when they're doing it entirely the right way all the time, too much is being expected. But what we do expect is that they are gonna follow what the Bill of Rights are, what the Constitution is, and consequently, to the extent it's happening, that we have unidentified federal officers on American streets with peaceful protesters, I'm not talking about rioters, right. But with peaceful protesters, taking a peaceful protester because they don't like what they're hearing and spraying them with pepper spray, hitting them with batons, sticking them into an unmarked vehicle, detaining them without a warrant and without there being an offense that's occurred, that's wrong too. Oh, I agree with that. But I didn't go further than you did is even if there were a riot or somebody who was in need of arrest. I still think we ought to have our officers identified so that we can hold them accountable or acknowledge they did the right thing, whichever way, by uniform so that we can answer those fact questions later on. Because I don't know how a law enforcement officer can be protected from somebody who is being thrown into a van, like one of the videos I saw. Because if you or I were trying to be thrown into a van, we're going to resist. I don't know that it's a law enforcement officer I'm resisting. I would try and use any force available to me, and I might hurt an officer. Whereas if I knew that they were an officer, I'm going to comply. We'll sort it out later, because clearly there's been a misunderstanding. But if I'm thrown in a van by somebody who's not marked, that's a different conversation. And so not just because of all the constitutional and legal reasons, but just for the safety of the officers. They should want to be labeled. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that anybody that, that is really using as their guide, protect and serve, would agree to take somebody who's a peaceful protester that our, that our military has, has fought wars to protect that notion of liberty, of them being able to be a peaceful protester against a wrong they believe exists, and to deprive them of that right by sticking them into an unmarked vehicle to in any way think that's right. Now, I, one of the things imagine. that we haven't mentioned yet today, but is important for the context, is this societal reaction, the polarization, this bubble, uh, is reinforced by the election. I mean, you voted today in the primary. Um, because we have a presidential election, I think that it has intensified these feelings. It has helped push the extreme agenda. And what I have to keep thinking, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm optimistic, I don't know, is that really 5 or 10% of the people involved are the extremists. I think that the vast majority of our country is not crazy, we're not extreme, we're not 
um, advocating any overthrow of the government and we're not advocating that we have a police state. I think that most of us are going about our lives trying to survive this pandemic and we're seeing the very small fringe on either side. And it's because we have an election less than 90 days or 95 days. Well, that, that is a pressure point for sure. People have extreme views in our society today that are politically driven, are partisan driven. Are, again, this whole notion of tribalism, it, where we see fewer and fewer people willing to compromise, fewer and fewer people willing to be the voice of reason, being able to see both sides of a, of a dispute. And, and, and as trial lawyers, we got to swing back to, to here's what the thing is. All of us are created equal. Hat not to be um, whether we have a particular color of the skin, hat not to be what gender we are, hat not to be who we love and who we don't love. All of us are created equal and have that basic right of civil liberties, right? So we're seeing, we're seeing issues from both the, the politics that we're dealing with, from the protests where people are trying to make their point that black lives matter or our lives matter, and we're seeing it partly as an emotional response to a pandemic that has changed how we go about each day. So we're gonna take a break and then we're gonna swing back and talk a little bit about the civil liberties that spring from how to deal with a pandemic. Okay. So I wanna take this from a very local level and then expand, okay. because I know you've been in touch with city council in Joplin, you've been talking with some of the people that make decisions in this city about safeguards that are going to exist. How is it that some basic, safe, simple safeguards deprive us of civil liberties? Well, uh, obviously, I don't think they do. That's why I've been advocating to everybody who will listen that we ought to have face coverings. We ought to have basic uh, precautions in place. The trouble is that we as Americans don't like being told what to do. And I get that. I don't like being told what to do. You don't like being told what to do. And every time somebody tells us what to do, our instinct, I shouldn't say every time, often, our instinct is to fight back, is to push back about that. And here we had a lot of unknowns and misinformation early on. And so I think had initially, we all understood, wear a face covering, you will save your mother, grandmother, ex whoever's lives. We all would have done it. I think so. I like to think that most of us are good-hearted people who want to protect another. But because there is this sort of political back and forth about do face coverings matter? Is it really transmitted that way? How infectious is it? Is this really just an opportunity for one part or the other to exert control? There was enough confusion that became politicized. And once you get in your head that this party, this particular party wants me to do something, I ain't doing it because they want me to do it. And then it's a, an act of solidarity with your own belief system, with um, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, and the divide happened that way. And what I said all along is, I don't care if you're Republican, I don't care if you're Democrat, I want us to protect one another. And that's what we do as trial lawyers. That's what we do every day is we try and make the community safer, better, healthier. And this is not a partisan issue. This is not a political issue. This is, if I wear a mask or a face covering, anything that keeps my spittle from going anywhere near you, it reduces the chance that I could accidentally infect you. And I think that's what we keep coming back to. The problem is that we had enough misinformation and confusion that it became this, I'm gonna wear a mask to say that I'm anti-Trump or to say that I'm whatever. And it became that political issue. And once we get an idea in our heads, I don't know how to un-get it there. Yeah, and it's interesting because misinformation 
that may have been springing initially way back in February and March from the fact there wasn't sufficient face coverings or masks out there. And consequently, what some of the scientists were saying was everybody doesn't need to, to wear it. And then as those face coverings become more available, as they get produced, the scientists now, both at the CDC and the National Institute of Health and really all over the world are saying face coverings do help in not, it's not a vaccine where the virus is concerned, but it helps diminish the spread of the virus. So, you know, it's so hard for people, as you're talking about, that are already locked in to a notion just because of what their leaders of their particular political party say to step back and look at it objectively. And the reality is face coverings are not brand new in 2020. Reality is every surgeon that operates wears a face covering when they do. Any infectious process that's become a pandemic for centuries I saw some pictures from the 1918 flu where everybody on them had the face coverings on. And it's because it clearly helps diminish the spread of, of, air, of an airborne type virus. And yet now what we get six months into this pandemic is we get so locked into the notion of, well, I'm on record as saying I'm not wearing a dang mask because that's, that's taken away my civil liberties. If, if government's saying I'm going to, I'm for sure not going to do it, that we lose the sight of the fact that grandma or our child or our aunt may get the virus because we're spreading it. And I think there's a whole lot to unpack there. One of the things that I find, I mean, I still pretend I'm relatively young and relatively healthy. And I talked to a lot of people in my age group um, who are like, hey, I'm not that worried about it. I know so-and-so who got it and they had it, you know, it's like a bad flu and they got over it. I'm like, I'm not worried about me or you either. What I'm worried about is exactly what you said, is that I may be a carrier. I may have it, may not have any symptoms, may have it have mild symptoms, but I'll take it back to my mom or to your mother. And then all of a sudden we've accidentally killed somebody. And that is that if we can reduce the harm, if we can avoid needless harm, we should. And that's what you and I have been preaching since we've met, you know, decades and decades ago is we as drivers of automobiles, as doctors providing care, as businesses, as product developers, we all have this obligation to not cause needless harm to others. Now, I'm okay if you take your own risks, okay? I hope you don't. But if you want to be stupid with your own health, if you want to smoke, if you want to do dangerous behaviors, that's on you. But when you start casting dangerous behaviors that can harm others, that's when I think it's no longer just about your liberties. Now you're taking away somebody else's right to life. Well, it's, it's, it's like the whole notion of somebody deciding, do I wear a seatbelt? If they decide no, well, they're taking the risk of their own life, perhaps. But if they decide, I'm going to take this text message and I'm going to send a text message back while I'm driving, right. then they're not only risking their own lives, they're risking the lives of the other people out there. That's a great example. And, and so what juror, Scott, what juror is going to look at a, a set of facts and say, you know, that person ought to have been able to choose for themselves whether to text and drive. Why, why should we hold them responsible for that? It's freedom of speech, you know. And, and yet the same analysis works when we're talking about what the scientists are saying will help diminish the spread of the virus. It's not just about taking care of us. It's about taking care of, of those that we care about. And what I think is crazy about that, I mean, just truly crazy about that, is we can debate how deadly it is. But we've had hundreds 
thousand, hundred fifty thousand, depending on which number. About one hundred and sixty thousand now in this country. Now people can talk about overreporting, underreporting, whatever. It's at least a hundred thousand. Okay, I'm going to spot you. They're off by a third. A hundred thousand people have died. More people than in Vietnam, twice over. And I'm telling you, um, if there's any chance that I could cause that level of harm, I'm going to I'm going to err on the side of safety. But forget that for a second. Um, you wear shoes and a shirt when you go into every public accommodation now. Okay, that's infringing on your liberty. Okay, why can't you wear no shoes? And why can't you wear no shirt? The health risk to me is virtually zero, if not zero. But you do that every day. Nobody cares about the government telling them they're going to wear shirts and shoes. And to me, I'm like, okay, so why not wear a face covering? It's this damn politics stuff. Well, and we're talking two layers here because there's government ordinances, government legislation that occurs at a local level, maybe a state level, maybe a federal level. And people are reacting to that in either a positive or negative way. And let's stop there for a second yep. because I get this question. I mean, you know how it is at family gatherings or yep. friends are like, hey, you're a lawyer. Tell me about this. Here's the answer is we, as part of our social contract with the government from day one, have always said, you government, we're going to give you the power to protect all of us because we know that individually won't. And so that's why we build sanitation systems. That's why you can't go out and, and pee in your yard. You've got to have all kinds of public decency and sanitation and those kinds of issues. And so that's normal. That's part of everyday life. Elected representatives doing it. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, well, they can't tell me what to do. Yes, they can. And they always have. And that's part of what every society functions like. And you don't have a problem with them telling you, you need to pee indoors. Okay. This is the same kind of thing is you just can't subject me to your bodily fluids. That's normal. Okay. The second piece of that though, is the private stuff. And mm -hmm. that's, what's really interesting to me because that's where I got my haircut yesterday. I may have told you the story, but I got my haircut yesterday. I no, didn't, by the way, you didn't get your haircut <laughs> this yeah. pandemic, but, um, I walk in and on the door, it basically says, Hey, you know, I know there's a mask ordinance, but if you're not wearing one, I assume you have a medical or religious or some kind of condition and the fourth amendment and HIPAA say, I can't ask you about it. So come on in something like that. Uh, and I just chuckled myself because I'm like, okay, that's not what the fourth amendment says. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does the fourth amendment apply at all to private businesses? It does not. Um, and again, I don't care. I get the idea that they are expressing, Hey, we're not taking this mask ordinance ser seriously. And you can come in without one if you want to. But so many people today are all of a sudden expert epidemiologists, medical doctors, lawyers, constitutional scholars. It just, I can't get on social media. I can't <laughs> stay on Facebook. I just can't do it from both sides. Well, so a private business being instructed by a governmental body we're going to have social distancing. We're going to have uh, face coverings of some type Then the private business implementing it. And somebody going into that private business and saying, you're taking away my civil liberties by saying, I can't be in here unless I keep social distancing and keep a face covering on. Right. Why isn't that a legitimate argument? It, why isn't it a First, First Amendment right that somebody can go in and say, I have a freedom of religion and I have a religious belief against wearing a mask in Walmart. Well, the easy one is <clears throat> public safety has always trumped First Amendment in the proper context. You can't go into a crowded movie theater and yell fire as you just can't because you're going to cause imminent bodily harm to somebody else by exercising your freedom of speech then and there. And I think the same argument could be, hey, if you're going to come in, I'm getting my hair cut. The person cut my hair is going to be close to me. They need to wear a mask. I need to wear a mask because we're putting these, each other at risk of harm and we can be required to talk later. It's not an unreasonable restriction on the time, place, and manner. 
But more than that, it's part of this social contract I was talking about is we can regulate for public safety. We always have been able to, as long as it serves legitimate purpose and isn't unduly burdensome, it doesn't target certain kinds of speech, those kinds of things. And, and as long as it doesn't discriminate against one person versus, versus another. another. And so if we said, hey, you can't talk about um, Vice President Biden or President Trump, that would be a much different conversation. But this is basically saying, hey, cover your mouth when you're in this close proximity for this period of time. But the private businesses who are doing it, like our office, for example, we've got to sign up now. It says, hey, if you want to come in, we're happy to visit with you. We're happy to continue to serve you. We'd ask that you cover your mouth. If we choose, I don't want you in here without a face covering. That's not a state or government action at all, even though we happen to be in a city that has that ordinance, because you and I have chosen with our partner, Patrick, that we want to err on the side of safety. And we say, look, um, this is our private property and we can refuse service to you if you're not going to act in the safety of others. Right. So civil liberties is a is a notion that's part of equal justice. And yet, as with every liberty we have, part of it is intended not only to be something we can exercise selfishly, but it's also intended to keep the public, the, the society safe, to keep a sense of order in our society. Right. Other, otherwise, we have anarchy. Uh, we have people who don't care about each other. We have people that that can decide for themselves unilaterally what should apply to them and what doesn't. So just because you have a civil liberty doesn't mean you, mean you can treat other people in a way that could harm them. Right. And I think that that's where the healthy balance comes in. I can't remember who said it. Um, it's been too long since law school now, but my right to swing my fist ends at your face is, yeah, I can gesture all day long until I smack you in the head with it. And then you have the freedom to not be smacked in the head. And it's, it's where our, our individual rights come in conflict with each other. And that's what this pandemic has caused is um, we now have the right to be secure in our own bodies and not be forced to wear things we don't want to wear until it causes a certain level of harm on others if we don't. Yeah, and part, partly the, the angst that's out there now is because of the type of pandemic we have, I think. You know, if, if we were dealing with Ebola, which was out there three or four years ago, actually maybe longer than that, it was maybe five years ago. I remember there was a scare that we were going to have Ebola occur because it was occurring in Africa and we had some of our healthcare providers going over there and a couple of people had it here. This sort of hemorrhagic type thing where you're, where you are, uh, you're having blood pouring from all of your body orifices and you're vomiting all over everybody and everybody's sitting there thinking, wow, I mean, this person's you know, going to spread this to me and I'm going to get it and I'm going to give it to my loved ones. What we have instead is a virus that for many is asymptomatic. Right. Or for, for many, they have these mild symptoms and they think, well, this isn't any different than the flu. And, and yet for some, may, maybe more the those that have vulnerabilities are older, have pre-existing conditions that make them more inclined to get sick. For, for those, it can, and, and, but not always, sometimes it's for people who are as athletic as you that it happens. Right. Just depends on what the virus, how it affects your body. It can be where you're struggling to breathe, where, where you get to the point, like what poor George Floyd was, where you say, I can't breathe anymore. And that is an equal horror if what your loved one is going to have to do is go into a hospital, be incapable of breathing, maybe not get... The, the medical attention they have because of the demand on the healthcare providers. And you can't even go in and hold their hand while it's happening. Right. So, but, but for those of us in the public that aren't able to witness it in the hospital with that loved one, 
not able to see a video of it, of it occurring. We're sitting there thinking, well, this isn't that bad. Why are we treating this any differently than we did H1N1 in 2008 or the swine flu in the 90s? And, and it creates this uh, ability for us to divorce ourselves from what's happening to our fellow human beings and think, well, if it happens to be big, no big deal. And by the way, uh, we, we don't want to have our day-to-day routines interrupted we want schools to be able to open. We want to go to the pub if we want to. We want to be able to go to the beach. We want to go to church. We don't want interruptions in our in our normal, ordinary lives. Well, and I want to come back to that because I think that's another part of the um, social bubble where we get our news from is it's not an either or. And I think we artificially say that we have to um, basically lock down society and, and do all these restrictions or we get to open our economy and we get to get going again. But the fact of the matter is, if we don't get the pandemic in hand, we're never going to have a functioning economy. We're not going to have those jobs. And so I get that we have small businesses locally who say, hey, this is killing me because I can't have everybody crowd into my restaurant or my pub or whatever. Well, the problem is, if you let everybody in your restaurant or your pub, you're literally killing people. And that's going to encourage them to stay away for their own safety. And we're going to have a long time of an economic downturn. And again, what I think should have happened is we should have used face coverings. We should have locked down for a short period of time. And probably within a month or two, this would have been mostly behind us. But instead, we had this hit and miss policy. And so we've destroyed the economy. We haven't gotten the pandemic under control. And we're in for a long, long repeat cycle of this. With millions unemployed, with hundreds of thousands dying. Right. right. With And especially if the poor aren't able to get help, which is what is the worry right now, right. where people may be starving on the streets, not just on the streets, but starving on the streets. So Lady Justice, Lady Justice in our line of business is important because Lady Justice has a blindfold, meaning we're going to treat everybody the same, whether it's a pandemic. uh, We don't care what color your skin is. We don't care what what uh, how old you are, whether you're already um, disabled and not functioning as much of a benefit to society, some may say, as others. Everybody gets treated the same. If it's a protest and people are exercising their legal rights in a legal way, we're not going to take those rights away. And we're also going to recognize that we need to change some things to make sure that people aren't treated unequally. So the, the blindfold of equal justice. The scales, meaning everybody starts even in our system rather than somebody being behind because of who they are, where they come from, who they love. And the sword of truth, which is hopefully what trial lawyers ought to be speaking to society as standing up for law and order for a society with a social fabric that makes everybody have the best chance for life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And that's why we've got to be doing podcasts like this. And that's why I'm out in the community and why you're vocal about how we believe and see the world is because it can't just be in the courtroom is equal justice has to be a part of our society because these same people who are getting their news from one source or another who are becoming immune or uncaring about their fellow man, they're not going to do the right thing in the courtroom if they're not doing the right thing in their common lives. And I am not a trial attorney to try and just cure that one wrong for that one person who's been injured by a careless driver. I'm trying to hold that careless driver responsible so that we stop careless driving or at least reduce the numbers. And so I think that a lot of times we may get some pushback about, 
well, why are, are Johnson and Voorhees talking about this crap anyway? Shouldn't they stay in their lane, as you will? And it, no, this is our lane. As citizens of our community, as people who care about preventing needless harm, this is an extension of who we are and what we do. It's not just in the law office. It's not just yep. in the courtroom. It is who we are. The, and, and spot on on the key. Our job has always been, as long as you and I have known each other and been doing business together, we're going to stand for those who have been on the wrong side of somebody who didn't stop. And I'm going to say this again. <laughs> Needless harm is caused when somebody isn't doing their job correctly, isn't utilizing certain safeguards. And we've always stood for those that are the victims of those folks who are causing needless harm. So one last thing I wanted to, to, to mention here, um, again, part of the notion that we're going to, we're going to stand for those who are the most weak, the most vulnerable, the, those that are in need. And also we've got sort of a thing of standing for kids. So what we're doing this year, uh, as you know, we've been doing something in the local community for years now, but what we're doing this year as part of that safeguard that we're wanting to give back and contribute to our community is, is we're making sure that every single student that's going back to school in August, I think there's 16 school districts now, maybe it's 17 in our area. Every single student, faculty member, staff member is going to get a face covering that's customized for their student logo so that if it's the Joplin Eagles, it's going to have the eagle on it. Uh, and they're going to ha have them in hand, as, as I understand it, from what we heard this morning, by the time school starts, right. being distributed to each of the schools, to distribute to each of the people that are there. Our way of giving back to our community and making sure that what we stand for is more than just words, it's also deeds. And I want to talk about that, too, real quick, because it's not a political statement. I mean, you and I, um, we are not intending to make any political comment on that at all. Right. We know these school districts have said, we think it's safer for kids to have their faces covered. We want to help make that happen without putting an unnecessary financial burden on the school system. And we want to make sure that there's some school pride on display too. And we've always stood for making the community safer. And if this is a way we can help make community safer, especially for kids, heck yeah, we want to do it. We encourage every other business to do it. Right. To do something similar. Absolutely. A well, good discussion. Yeah. That's Thank you.